It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Well, there it is. Andrea wanted me to sing. Our producer, Andrea, wanted me to sing the beginning of today's episode. I don't think I'm going to go that far, Brian. But uh, not, not, not quite your genre? Not quite, not quite. But uh, <laughs> no, we've got a great episode on the way today. Whoop, there it is. Yes, I, that doesn't actually have anything to do with, I don't think, the financial part of our conversation today. But uh, we, we based the, the show name today off of something that you're bringing up. And I have no idea what it is, Brian. We didn't talk about this pre-episode other than the fact that there's something called the the whoop or whoop or whatever whoop, strap. Whoop, whoop, W-H-O-O-P. The whoop strap. All right. So we're going to find out what that is in a second. Uh, we're also going to talk about the stock market because everybody's asking about the stock market, Brian. Yep. I know you're fielding yep. questions about it left Lots and right. Everybody questions. you meet has questions about that. And then in the spirit of answering people's questions, this is going to be another one of those cool episodes where we do just that. We answer lots of different financial questions from listeners and folks that uh, Brian has run into in and around town and in the office. So we're going to cover a variety of topics as we get into the show a little bit later on. We've got questions about nursing homes, money in the bank, 401ks, inheriting money, lots of good stuff on the agenda today. So I'm looking forward to this one, Brian. I know you are too. Yeah, the questions were piling up. We only got to a couple of them last time, so we're gonna we're gonna devote this episode to knocking out all these questions. And I think we got a couple that that are very timely and on everybody's mind, and then some that are uh, just relevant. And if you know somebody that is asking the question, you'll you'll sound smarter because of it. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get to any of that important stuff, all right, what in the world is the whoop strap? Okay, so uh, I've been really interested and intrigued by some of the biohacking and measuring and monitoring health, fitness, energy level, and you know, what, what kind of um, quality of sleep that you get. Or And there's some new technologies out that they call wearables. So you've seen like the Apple Watch. Uh, Aura makes one called the Aura Ring. And the Whoop Strap is one that you actually put on your wrist and, and wear like a wristwatch. It doesn't actually tell you the time, but it's uh, it, it, it looks very much like just you know, standard wrist, wristwatch. And I bought it because... I've been wanting to improve sleep quality, energy levels, all those kinds of things. You can use it for like workouts if you want to measure the the strain and, and stress that you put on and optimally match then this sleeping, rest, recovery with your exertion and stress level. Not stress like anxiety stress, but just physical stress from, from actually working out. And the old adage of what gets measured gets done is very applicable here. Hmm. So for the longest time, I, I've just never, I didn't feel like I was getting good sleep. I, my energy level was off and I heard about this whoop strap. And the story that I think intrigued me the most about it was one of a professional golfer. And during, during COVID, he had been wearing one. And, and as you wear it, it establishes a baseline for your respiratory rate, your resting heart rate, heart rate variability, oxygenation level, skin temperature, all all these different metrics just constantly being monitored for you. Well, his respiratory rate increased by one breath per minute over his baseline. And they looked into it. And obviously, because it was the middle of COVID, they they ran a COVID test. And turns out he was in the very early stages of having COVID. And so he was able to get treated, but also avoid being around people that uh, you know, that he might potentially expose huh. to infection. Wow. 
That's pretty interesting. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something there, Walter. Well, it's just like my very minute track. I'm, I'm kind of enamored uh, by what you're describing. I, I've pulled it up. I'm looking at it as you as you describe it. So it's mm-hmm. it, and it's watch. You're wearing it on your wrist, so it's similar to like a Fitbit or Apple Watch, kind of in that same vein. Right, right. And and the the nice it's got a little you know laser that it's measuring like blood flow and oxygenation and, and skin temperature and all that stuff. Which you know if you had a fever or if you were uh, you know, breathing harder or something like that. It's just a good indication of what's going on. But I really like it for the sleep breakdown because it tracks through the night what type of sleep that you're getting, it, the awake cycles, light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep. And then it gives you a metric of, you know, how much you were awake, what the efficiency of your sleep level was. And to me that it became, well, kind of, kind of like measuring workouts or hiring a trainer or something like that, you, you get better results when somebody is giving you some feedback or, or monitoring. Well, this does it in the background. You don't really have to do anything to, to gather the data. It's collecting it 24 hours a day as long as you're wearing the, the strap. And then you can see based on the sleep that I got last night, well, my heart rate variability, which is a, a metric I knew nothing about. I don't, I don't know how you would track that otherwise. It seems to be one of the top ones for you know, is today a good day to take on a more, you know, exertive workout or should I be more mentally coherent today? Or like today, I think I had a bad night's sleep last night, allegedly. And so my recovery rate is only 27% today. So if I, if I sound uh, less than my, my usual energetic self, it's, it's because whoop says I'm only 27% recovered. <laughs> now, how much of that is psychological though, right? Is that, that I'd like to see some, some study on that. Like, oh, the watch says I'm tired, so I feel tired, right? Is there some reinforcement going on there? So I, I've used it on the flip side. And when the watch says I'm recovered and ready to go, I bust out and get as much done as I can. And, Interesting. And okay. do a little bit harder. And, and it, you get a bit of a virtuous cycle too, because if you feel like you're, if your body's saying it's rested, then you can work out a little bit harder. You get a little more uh, exertion. And so then you end up sleeping better. And then that it, it becomes a little bit, little bit of a positive cycle. But yeah, I've, I have sense. always had very irregular sleep. So I, I'm focused there, but you can use it for a lot for the recovery or preventive and, and just general health monitoring calories burn. It's, it's got all kinds of charts and data and really cool. Anybody that's into fitness or wants to improve their cognitive or energy levels or whatever. It's just a, it's really neat technologies that they're coming out with these wearables. Pretty cool. Well, it's called the, the whoop strap and uh, whoop. There it is. Our, uh, our, our title for the show today and uh, go check it out. Might be interested in uh, learning more about it. I know that a lot of these watches do some of this stuff. I think the big point here though, is this particular device is specifically dedicated to tracking that stuff where it's more of a secondary feature on some of these other these other products. Yeah. And, and it's, I think it's designed to be worn, you know, you get wet, you, it's got a quick dry strap on it. Uh, so it was meant to be more streamlined, I think, and more comfortable for actual physical activity. And it probably measures a little bit deeper data than the Apple watch. Yeah. Uh, the, the aura ring I've, I've heard good things about, but, uh, yeah, just talking about it. Cause I think people should check it out. And it, it, in this, Day and age, if if you see a spike in a, in your body temperature or a decrease in oxygenation level, there, there's all kinds of cool things that it can tell you that might be a problem. And if you can get ahead of it, that's always a good thing. 
I'm sure some of our listeners will find that interesting and want to go check that out, Brian. So thanks for bringing it to our attention. Uh, not sponsors of today's show. No, not right? so, not sponsored. There's no no conflict of interest here. <laughs> just uh, passing along. Let, let the SEC playing. know that we have no conflict of interest right. there. I, I, I'm looking at the, the one feature that attracts me is the um, it, it, it tells when is the best time for you to wake up so that yep. you'll wake up with energy. Because you, you ever seem to like... Oh, I woke up at 5 a.m. today, but yet I had all this energy because you woke up at like the right time at the right cycle versus, mm-hmm. oh, I slept all the way to seven, but I feel really groggy because you woke up, you know, mid, mid REM sleep or something like that. And you just, you ha- sometimes you have trouble getting into the day when you wake up at the wrong time. Well, yeah, this watch I don't is know supposed to part of wake this... you up at the right time. Yeah, it'll do. I haven't set mine to do that because I'm, I'm still just trying to get some level of consistency with what I'm doing. But uh, yeah, there, there's part of the sleep cycle that's better to wake up during. And if, if you, Tell it, yeah, roughly I want to wake up at say 7.30. If the optimal time to wake up is 10 minutes before or after that, it'll you can set it to do that for you. So I'll, that I'll try that next. That worth trying just for that feature alone. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thanks for telling us about that, Brian. I greatly yeah. appreciate it. A lot of the questions you're getting uh, are about the market. So is, is much, you may be tired of talking about it, Brian, but you do this for a living. So maybe not, but, uh, yeah, I've what, been talking about it for 22 years. So, yeah, uh, so what, this is what, no one more deal. time won't hurt. That's right. So, so what are the questions you're getting? Cause it was, you know, at the beginning of the year, it was what's going to happen with interest rates and the housing market and mortgages. Then inflation became kind of the big headline. Now the mm-hmm. stock market's the thing getting all the press again. So what kind of questions are you fielding in that regard right now? Well, we had, you know, we had a huge year last year. The market was up high 20 something percent, depending on which index you were looking at. So we recovered very nicely from COVID. It was quick and you had a couple of good years there. So everybody was feeling really good about the portfolios December of last year. Then we rolled into this year. And of course, the inflation problem really, you know, just came, came charging in. Uh, as gas prices went up, as all that COVID stimulus was was hitting the economy, there was just too many dollars in the system. So um, where we're having these high inflation rates, that really takes a toll on consumers, confidence, the economy, translates into corporate profits, uh, increased supply chain costs, all, all those things. And so the big discussion, the big topic you know, this year has been inflation and, and what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And we've seen them raise rates very dramatically. They've had some 25, 50, 75 basis point increases. Granted, we were coming off of near zero rates for a long, long time. And the magnitude of the increase, you know, is is many fold of the, let's just say it was 25 basis points that we're at. You know, a, a rise to two and a half percent rates is a tenfold increase in rates. But I mean, it's still a, a relatively low rate. And we've had some more increases, you know, since. Where we stop, I, I don't know. But the Fed, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Federal Reserve. And our Federal Reserve Bank is interesting because it's, it's broken up into 12 different regions so that you get you know, feedback from all the different parts of the country, the different types of economies and, and interests that we have you know, all across a very large country. And then they try and filter that back into you know, what are we going to do as one cohesive unit? Well, getting inflation under control that is the thing that determines the legacy, the history, the, the measure of success for the Federal Reserve is can they control inflation? So they've gone bonkers just rapidly. They're a little behind the, the, the curve getting rates increased. So now they're going bonkers trying to increase the rate and, and get inflation back under control, which is always harder to do once it 
gets out of the bag because you, if you can't control it quickly, people begin to factor in and expect inflation. And once that happens, it gets very, very hard to get people convinced that inflation's coming down. So I think, I think the Fed taking strong action and getting that under control is, is a good thing. But many of the smart people that I, I listen to, uh, Jeff Gunlack, Kathy Wood, Lou Navalier, I think a lot of those people think the Fed is overdoing it and we could actually be on a deflationary cycle on the other side of this. So a lot of, a lot of confusion and a lot of mixed opinions about what we should be doing. But basically, the Federal Reserve is going to continue to you know, do everything they can to rein in inflation that could jack up unemployment, it could crimp company profits, uh, but they, they've got to get the inflation under control. Well, assuming they're doing that, and in this last number to come out, seems like inflation's maybe holding steady. It's not, it's not continuing to increase, but it's still at eight and a quarter, 8.3%. It's not good. That, that's, a, that, that's too high of an inflation rate to you know, have a, a good, stable economy going forward. So as we look to profits, profits have been holding up relatively well. Except the other day, FedEx came out and they had you know big big pullback, uh, big warning that really shook the market. So we had we had an inflation reading and then a couple of companies that are bellwethers for the economy that look like things could be very you know slowing down. And if we slow down dramatically, we could be in a position where the Federal Reserve is reversing course, lowering rates. You know maybe a year, eighteen months from now. Uh, that that's pure speculation, but we'll we'll see. So then um, there's, so to get the inflation, the Fed activity, corporate profits, if those begin, to, in fact, I would say that corporate profits are the thing that you should be focusing on now more than inflation, right? The, the inflation has been around. They're, they're doing what they can to get that under control. How is that going to impact company profits? There's a, a number of things that if you look at the overall market, so valuations, balance sheets, strong dollar, all of these things are, are factoring uh, and, and having an influence on different types of companies. So for starters, you know, let's look at the balance sheets. Corporate balance sheets are very strong. The banks are very solvent. We hopefully learned our lesson, lesson during the financial crisis. And so we don't have this systemic you know, bomb that has gone off like it did, did with the financial crisis. I would say this is more of a cyclical you know, type of recession, you know, it, it, it's not a, uh, it, it's more based on money supply, uh, maybe a little hangover from COVID and all the, the stimulus that happened there, corporate spending, forgiving, you know, trillions of dollars, tr trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there, you know, it, it start, does start to add up after a while. But uh, what we're seeing then with consumers is rising debt levels. A lot of people taking out credit cards. I think they're trying to patch the gap, uh, you know, using, consumer debt. So that that's a little bit scary. So consumer uh, balance sheets eroding a little bit, uh, which they had been very strong through COVID. Financials and, and U.S. companies, you know, strong balance sheets. I think the wild card becomes what's happening in China. And I've heard, it, it's hard to, to tell and know what's going on because you don't have the transparency and the, uh, it's a little more of an opaque system with the government having propped up, invested in, you know, kind of kind of a cronied uh, version of capitalism that they've got over there. 
there seems to be a mountain of debt, somewhat of a like a housing bubble, a lot of uh, properties that were started. They're not getting finished. There's there's people uh, revolting and protesting because they've they're paying mortgages on condos that they were going to buy that aren't aren't yet complete. And I, I just don't know how serious of a problem that becomes and if that spills over into our markets. Obviously, the Asian currency crisis back in the 90s uh, did ripple around the world for a little while. I don't have a lot of exposure to China for this reason, but they are now the second largest economy in the world. And, you know, something wrong there could, uh, could, could definitely spill over. So we'll have to, have to wait and see on that one. A lot of different moving parts to track right now, right? It was easier when it was just housing or just uh, inflation or just this. And now it just feels like it's all rolled together. And it's a lot of things to try and uh, juggle and, and keep in front of you as uh, you know, an, an everyday investor. I know you kind of eat, eat off of this every day, Brian. But uh, you know, for the layman out there, uh, this, this is tough, I think. This is a tough period to try and keep your emotions under control while evaluating all these different things and trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. Yeah. And, and obviously, like I said, the strong dollar, that that's tough on international companies and U.S. multinationals. So I have, as a, as a practical strategy, I've stopped allocations to international. I've, even with my 401k, with, where I'm making the monthly contributions, uh, I, I'm, I'm steering clear of the international markets for a while. And that, that strong dollar will continue to devalue the... It's good for consumers because it makes international goods imported cheaper for U.S. consumers, but for domestic companies that are doing business abroad, it, it'll eat into their their profits. And so then if you go back and look at company valuations, we're, we're about at or just slightly b- below historic values. So stocks are reasonably priced. I would not say they're cheap. We may move to a level where they're closer to cheap before we turn around. But as I've said many times, we don't try to trade even these intermediate term trends because if you if you had a crystal ball and went back to January of this year and said, oh, we've we've had this great run up, we're at all time high valuations. Should we liquidate everything and go to cash? Let's say you timed it perfectly and you had liquidated your accounts in the beginning of the year. And doing so would trigger a massive capital gain if you've if you've been invested for long or have highly appreciated securities. You'll pay income tax. You could kick yourself up into the 15, even the 23.8% bracket on capital gains. You pay some little state tax on that. There's a great way to part with somewhere between 15 and 30% of your portfolio, depending on your, your income tax bracket. So even if you had liquidated the tax that you would have paid, plus the dividends that you would have missed out on collecting, probably puts you right back to where the market took you anyway. And you're then you know, having to deal with the question of when do I get back in? And nobody ever does that right. They get emotional. We have a little bit of a rally like we did in you know, July and August. I'd call that much, very much a bear market rally. It's just kind of a hope that things were getting better. And then some of the data that came out you know, caused the market to roll back over. It gets very hard to be rational and try to predict exactly when things are going to happen. And so I just told everybody, brace for, let's say the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to have very manic reactions to any news, whether it's, if it's bad, we're going to react badly. Like the day they said inflation was, you know, still running hot market sold off 1200 points. 
I will bet you if we get anything positive, you know, the Fed becomes more dovish, the inflation rate's coming down, corporate profits look like they're staying strong. Any of those things could then have the opposite reaction and we could see a huge surge in the market. So trying to time it, getting emotional about it, all of those things, we're not going to do it. We've got people invested in high quality stuff. This cycle will pass. You need the dividends that you're earning. So as much as it stinks to you have to ride through this, it does not make any sense to try and liquidate, time it, incur all those taxes, miss all those dividends, and and mess up getting back into the market. So that that's why we hold. That's why we hold. Great lessons to be learned there. It's uh, no matter how many times you hear it, though, your emotions still want to pull you in a different direction, Brian. And I know that's why people often reach out to you and ask those questions and want to learn a little bit more about what's going on in their own plan. And so if you are one of those folks that wants to talk a little bit more about the planning process and working with Brian, you can reach out by calling 706-451-9800. 706-451-9800 or go to livingworth.com and click the book a call button to schedule a 15-minute complimentary conversation with Brian and see if you can get some more clarity around those financial goals. Again, livingworth.com, click book a call. I know you've gotten lots of questions about that stuff, Brian, but it doesn't stop there. We've got a nice list of questions about lots of different topics that people have uh, proposed to you. And uh, let's tackle some of these on the tail end of our episode today. And as always, folks, with all of these questions that we'll cover on the show today, you know, Brian's answers aren't based on an entire assessment, a full assessment of, you know, these individuals' financial situations. And therefore, please don't take any of this as specific investment advice. But with that being said, let's dive into some of these questions today. I don't have who this is exactly from. I'm guessing you've gotten this question just a lot. Multiple. Yeah, multiple, multiple people. Times. So we'll attribute this yeah. to lots of folks. Uh, should I carry a mortgage in retirement? Pretty popular one, huh? Well, for the longest time, we had super low rates. You could borrow money for two and three quarters to maybe three and a half percent. Yeah. And you know, while, while you're able to borrow that cheap, if you have somewhere that you can go to, to earn money that or to earn more than it's costing you. That's just, that's the fancy word for that. It's called arbitrage. And you're going to take you know money from one place that if you borrow and money costs you 3% and you can go over here and earn 6%, you're arbitraging that extra 3%. So mathematically, assuming that you can pull that off without risks or harms to your portfolio, then you know it, it would make sense to use leverage or, or to use debt to, to buy something. Problem is when people do that with their individual home, you're locking in a, a monthly bill and the market may not cooperate with your nice little uh, arbitrage strategy. So there's definitely some risk to it. So overall, I tell people for your primary residence, I would try to have that paid off. And if you if you can't, or you've got a small mortgage or something like that, that that's probably fine. But mortgage rates have basically doubled. I think we're up over 6% now. You know, so the math is a little, little tougher to justify. And the peace of mind from just having a debt-free house and not having to make those payments and have that cost, uh, I really like that in retirement. The, the exception would be as if you have an uh, investment properties. Let's say you're buying some houses or condos to, to rent out as as either an income strategy or, or to make some money on the, the real estate. For that, I would absolutely use the debt because that way, if, if something really collapses and goes wrong, if you had to turn it in or, or hand it over to the bank in, a, in an extreme situation, you could. I think what was the, was the Donald Trump that 
They said, if you wake up and you owe the bank a million dollars, you have a problem. But if you wake up and owe the bank a hundred million dollars, the bank has a problem. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, So it's kind of like that. If if you had to walk away from something, investment properties, use as much leverage as you can on those. And uh, yeah, 6% still, it's not as great as it was, but that's still relatively cheap. In in the grand scheme of things, historically, for sure. Um, all right. How about this question from Casey in Athens? Casey says, I'm not retiring for a few years, but I'll be 62 next month so I can start my social security. Should I go ahead and start it and use the extra income to get my house paid off sooner? So another house question here. Yeah. So, uh, a big factor here is whether they're still working and earning money. If you're earning money. So you're still employed. You got W2 income, 1099 income, whatever it is. If you have more than, I think it's, it's around 17, $18,000 of income, they will reduce your uh, social security benefit by 50 cents for every dollar you earn above that. So if you're making 50, $100,000, they, they could very easily reduce that social security benefit. You start it early and then they take it away because you're, you're still earning above that. So for that scenario, it's an absolute no, you would not do that. And I would say for probably 90% of the other scenarios, the answer is still no, because I am a big proponent of waiting to get the large, either the full social security benefit at 65, 66, whatever the, the, the full retirement age is, there's, there's a sliding scale to it, or even waiting until 70 to get the max benefit. So I see very few situations where starting at 62 is a clear cut yes. I would be inclined to say, you know, most people are probably working, so, so it's not going to work from that standpoint. The, the exception would be is if, if you're 62, you're retired or you've been downsized or, or whatever, and you, you just absolutely have to have the income, then go ahead and start it. But um, I, I think there's some things that you could do with IRA distributions, continuing to earn some money here. And, and as long as your cost of, of the debt's not too high, then uh, th- th- this starting Social Security early just doesn't make sense now. All right. Very good. Great question. Thanks for that one, Casey. Again, you can submit questions online at livingworth.com. We go to Elizabeth in Eatonton, and uh, Elizabeth says, I'll be inheriting about $250,000 after we settle my mom's estate within the next few months. Mm-hmm. I could pay off some debt or maybe save it for my own retirement because I don't have as much saved as I should. But part of me feels uncomfortable with using my mom's life savings to clean up my mess. Do you have any suggestions for how to navigate this? Yeah, so this is a great question. I get I, this actually happens quite a bit. It depends on how big the mess is. I guess would be my first answer. If you've got some things that are super high interest rate, credit cards, um, maybe even an auto loan or something like that where you're really getting charged a, a premium to be borrowing that money, I would say by all means use an inheritance to, to clean up that mess. The other side is then it, well, if you've got your regular you know, mortgages and, and things like that, if you've got a reasonable cost to your debt, then the psychological impact of paying those off with an inheritance and then having a, a clean slate, if you've gotten into that situation in the first place, by wiping it out, you have not really built the habit and the the discipline to save and to you know or to not spend whatever the case may be. So, I like to leave a little pain in the equation. I, I say pay pay off those debts that are clearly costing you know above what you could potentially earn somewhere else. 
So maybe that's six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent pay those off. But invest the rest of the money and let that be there for your long-term retirement security and savings, and then put the burden on yourself to continue paying off these other other loans. And if you can if you can discipline yourself to do that, it's better to have solidified your retirement savings than to you know totally get yourself out of debt. So it's uh, it's it's always going to be a you know, customizable. You know, depends on your individual situation. We'd be happy to talk to you about it. But uh, I would tend to put as much of it away for the long term as possible. It doesn't even have to be a mess that you're cleaning up, right? People sometimes just feel uncomfortable making choices with an inheritance just because they don't know what the wishes of that person, you know, what, what those wishes were, or just to have different feelings about uh, selling stock like, oh, well, they must have really enjoyed this stock or appreciated it. And so I don't, should I sell that? Like it doesn't fit in my portfolio or for my situation, but that must've meant something to them. And I know people struggle kind of with that mental aspect of it a little bit or the emotion. Yeah. There's an emotional aspect to some of those things. And I, I strongly encourage people not to get emotionally attached to mom's stocks or something like that. You want to make sure you have the best stuff going forward. So just because it worked for the last 10 or 20 years, it, it may not be the best thing going forward. So yeah, that's a great point. Good question, Elizabeth. Thank you. Uh, Here's one from Cliff in Roswell, a little bit shorter question. He says, uh, I have a lot of company stock in my 401k. How much do you think is too much as a percentage of the account? Mm, Wow. So having been burned by uh, being at Merrill Lynch and and being in, it wasn't my 401k, but it was the, uh, all the deferred compensation and employee stock purchase plans. You can, you can get heavy in a company stock uh, pretty easily with, if they have uh, a lot of programs or or benefits that allow you to acquire that stock or they pay you in stock, uh, maybe even options and things like that. So again, it's going to depend on on what the rest of your exposure is, but I would not put more than 10 to 20% in, in an individual company like that. Yeah, you feel like the company's maybe doing well and you're contributing and being a part of that, but you don't know what the rest of the company's doing. And and that was the case with Merrill. The the derivatives department was going off doing all these subprime securitized loans and, and taking on tons of uh, toxic assets on the balance sheet. That eventually sunk the whole company. So um, be careful with with concentrated stock positions. I, I ten twenty percent is plenty. That's a great question, and uh, one I'm sure is often pretty similar. Uh, a lot of people wondering that balance of stocks in their plan. Uh, Lydia in Macon with a good question for us. Lydia says, I'm 56 and I've been working at the same company for 32 years. That's rare in today's world, isn't it? I'm so tired of being here. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired of being here and I want to retire, but I'm still a few years from being able to take money out of my retirement accounts. Am I just stuck for a while? Yeah, so 59 and a half is the age at which you can access 401ks, IRAs without the penalties. So um, I would say if you don't have an alternative option, uh, if you can't fire up a resume and find something that you maybe enjoy to at least pay the bills for a few more years, yeah, you may be stuck in that one for a while, but uh, you know, be, be careful because sometimes when you're in positions where you feel like you're stuck, they may feel stuck too. And they may have other plans for you. So it, it's often good to have a backup plan, even if you have to maybe take a little bit of a step back back and pay, but try to ride it out to, if you can get to the 59 and a half, again, I think that's a little bit early to start accessing retirement accounts 
And um, this kind of ties into that uh, starting Social Security at age 62. If you do those things and lock those things in too early, uh, I think that really can potentially jeopardize your, your long-term security. So I would try and hang in there a few more years. As with all of these questions, Lydia, it's best to come in and get a full review of your plan because, well, who knows? You may already have plenty saved for retirement and at this point be uh, you know, good to go for the future. So um, I think that's important to remember and that you got to get that situation fully looked at and reviewed by Brian and the team. All right, let's get to one more question before we wrap up today's episode. This one's from Harriet in Augusta. And Harriet says, my brother tells me that I have way too much money in the bank, and he's probably right. It's about $150,000 now, but I just like knowing that it's there in case I have an emergency. Is that really so bad? Yeah, short answer is no. If that's what lets you sleep at night and that's your emergency fund, security blanket, uh, then you know, by all means, hang on to it. And I think it is going to also then tie into, well, how much other you know, money do you have invested in your portfolio, equity in your house? All those things are, are factors as well. So it depends on what the potential emergency might be as to whether $150,000 is too much. If it's, if it's your reserve for long-term care, that may not be near enough. If it's your air conditioner broke, I need a car repair, you know, maybe definite overkill for that. But uh, if nothing else, let's say you want to have this, you know, secure amount there. Well, money markets are starting to pay more money. I think you can get two and a half, you know, maybe we'll be vectoring up to 3% here with rates going up, you know, just on cash in money market. Uh, we've talked about I-bonds in the past. You can earn over 9% on those. Uh, those fluctuate so that that rate's not locked in, but it's a good place to have that safety and, and get a good return on it. So instead of just sitting in it in a, you know, maybe if it's in a non-interest-bearing account, checking account, you could potentially do better to get it in a place where you're at least earning a little bit on it. Because this goes back to that inflation. You're, you're, if you're losing, you know, eight, eight and a half, nine percent of your purchasing power every year under this inflation regime, you got to do something to to offset that because you're you're losing a lot of purchasing power. So. Um, yeah, hope, hopefully that helps. Lots of great questions today. Thanks for that one, Harriet. And thanks to all of our question askers. If you have additional questions, you want to run by Brian and get some financial guidance and have a deep conversation about your own plan, it's always wise to reach out and start walking through that, that planning process and getting those questions answered. You can get in touch very easily by calling 706-451-9800 or going to livingworth.com and click book a call. Brian is a certified financial planner. He's got that certification that's the standard of excellence in financial planning. If you don't know, CFP professionals meet rigorous education, training, ethical standards, and they're committed to serving clients and their best interests today to prepare them for a more secure tomorrow. And Brian himself, with more than 20 years of experience in the financial planning world, navigating folks through the ups and the downs, as we uh, have certainly experienced a lot this year. So if you're struggling to prioritize financial goals, need a plan for where and how to save, and maybe just want some help with investment and portfolio management, all of that falls under Brian's purview, and he can help you prepare. Start it all off very simply with a 15-minute complimentary call with Brian and see if we can get some clarity around those financial goals. Livingworth.com, go there and click book a call, or go to your phone and call 706-451-9800. That'll wrap it up. Thanks for all the questions. Brian, thank you for answering them. Enjoy your whoop strap. 
And, yeah, I was uh, going to say, it's been great whooping it up with you. And maybe next time we can hear about your new toy, that uh, Jeep Gladiator that you oh, got. Oh, yeah. Got a, got, a, got a new car to talk about. So, sure. Yeah, let's do that next time around. We'll, we'll share some uh, De- we'll Definitely share some, some listeners that would stories. like to hear about that. Yeah, I'll see if I can get into any trouble between now and our next episode so I can uh, share a fun story of maybe trying to get out of some sticky situation off-roading. That'll be really good. I'll go get in trouble on purpose this weekend, Brian, just for the story. Do okay. it. You have my permission. <laughs> Sounds great. That's Brian Doe. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on Make the Doe Rise. Make the Doe Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.